The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I appreciate you all being here today. We're going to do part two today of Abiding and the Second Coming. Now, in our study last week, we began to look at verses 28 and 29, the last two verses here in chapter 2. Um, let's read these together. And now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now he starts out here, little children. This is in the Greek, it's technia, which means offspring. So it's not denoting age at all, it's just saying you're the offspring of God. That's what he's trying to say here, so he's saying believers. And then he tells these believers, these little children, to abide in Him. Now, we've been going over this quite a bit, but I, this, is, this is critical to understanding this book, and it's critical, I think, to our Christian lives that we understand that abiding is something that every believer is supposed to do. But I think very few actually do. And we said last week, abiding is a call to discipleship. It's to be a follower of Yeshua. It is to live in fellowship with Him. We laid out some things last week that make it clear this is what abiding is. First of all, abiding would be spending time in the Word of God. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not spending time in the Word of God. You just can't do it. Abiding would be living as Christ lived. It would be obeying the commands that you come across as you are reading the Word of God. It would be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Abiding is the same thing that we see other places called walking in the Spirit or fellowshipping with Christ. It's what Jude calls keeping yourselves in the love of God. Now we talked last week about the fact that these two phrases here, when He appears and at His coming, are dealing with the second coming of Christ. Which we... I say we as preterists, we know happened in AD 70, in the destruction of the Jewish temple. Now, I gave you several quotes last week from John MacArthur about his take on the preterist view. Let me give you one more, okay? Uh, in his sermon that I quoted from last week, was called The, the Purifying Hope Part 2, MacArthur goes on to say this. He says, but what do they, and they is referring to preterists, What do they do with the statements in the Bible that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout? I don't know that anybody saw the Lord coming down or shouting or blowing a trumpet in AD 70. You know, those are the kind of things I used to read when I first became a preterist. I I read a lot of stuff trying to get out of it. Okay? Trying to get out of the preterist view because it was not... People didn't like it. And these are the kind of things I came. Well, I never saw him at 8070 coming on a cloud or never saw this trumpet blowing or all that stuff. You know, really? All right, we'll get into that. All right. And did the dead in Christ rise first in 70 AD? And did the corruptible become incorruptible? And did mortal people become immortal? And was death swallowed up? And 2 Peter 3.10 says that, that event, when that event happens, the heavens will melt with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
That's the dissolution of the universe. That didn't happen in AD 70. Okay, so what we see here is MacArthur views the second coming as the dissolution of the universe. Okay, we'll talk about that more. He says, what do they do with all that? I'll tell you in a minute. Well, they just allegorize it and they spiritualize it away. They make it mean whatever they want it to mean, which is remarkable to me. So we just take stuff and we make it mean whatever we want it to mean, according to John. All right. He says that we preterists spiritualize the second coming, but he sees it as the dissolution of the universe. So everything's just burned up and gone and it's a whole new thing. All right. That's how he sees it. I think most futurists see it that way. When the Lord comes, everything's going to be, you know, burned up and it's going to all be new. But is this how the Bible describes it? I mean, that's how most people see it, but is this how the Bible describes it? And I dare say, not at all. Let me show you a verse that just destroys that view. All right? 2 Thessalonians 2 1 and 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So he's talking to the Thessalonians about the coming of Christ, right? That's really clear. And our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already happened. So Paul says, listen, guys, we're talking about the second coming. You know, when you hear people telling you that it's already happened, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Now, this shatters the paradigm that the second coming is the dissolution of the universe. Do you see that? If it was the dissolution of the universe, would he need to tell them it didn't happen? Would they be able to be deceived by people writing letters or telling them? They'd be like, mm, no. And Paul would just say, hey guys, look out the window. Obviously it hasn't happened yet. So you know what that means? That means they must have had a different view of the nature of the second coming than MacArthur has. Because he says it's the dissolution. There, there's going to be no fooling anybody about that. Okay, But Paul has to write him and say, no, it hasn't happened. Don't worry about it. You'll know. You're not going to be deceived Okay, if it's a dissolution of the universe. There's just no way there. It's not going to happen. If the second coming was, as MacArthur says, the dissolution of the universe, it would have been real easy to to dispel that view. Like I said, just look out the window. The sky's still blue. The earth is still there. Your house is still there. They thought it already happened, so they must have had a different view than MacArthur does. They must have been spiritualizing it. Right? Like us preterists do. They obviously didn't think it was something you could see, because they would have seen it. And Paul didn't think it was something they could see or he wouldn't have said, don't worry, it hadn't happened yet. Well, John says that 2 Peter 3.10 is the dissolution of the universe. All right. Now, we saw from Thessalonian texts that they didn't view the nature of the second coming as physical. So, what is 2 Peter 3.10 talking about then? Let's look at uh, 3.11-13 here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, 
the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, that kind of does sound like the dissolution of the universe, doesn't it? Heavens are melting, things are being dissolved, heavenly bodies are melting. How do we understand that? Well, just by doing a little bit of work with the words here, first of all, the words heavenly bodies there, they're from the Greek word stoikion. All right? And in most translations, this is translated elements in your Bible. John MacArthur sees this as referring to the scientific idea of the elements of matter, all the atoms of the universe burning up. But is this what stoikion means? The Greek word stoikion is used seven times in the New Testament. Only seven times. And if you look at its usage, you see there's two main meanings. It's used of the elements of religious training or ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of Jews. So by stoikion, elements, he means elements of teaching. In Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, the literal meaning of the word is element, rudiment, principle. In other words, this is the element of religious training or ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews. But stoikion is also understood by many scholars to refer to heavenly spirits, and that's why the ESV translates it heavenly bodies uh, here. Obviously, stoikion is not about atoms or destruction of the universe. Now, the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, DDD, if you don't have it, it's a great resource. (laughs) People don't believe that. There's really a book called, yeah, Dictionary of Demons and Deities in the Bible states this. Given the predilection of many people in the Greco-Roman world for astral religious beliefs and practices, it could also be argued that the elements are planetary or other celestial bodies or that the elements refer to spiritual beings, such as angels or demons, who control earthly affairs and determine human destiny. Now, a number of interpreters, perhaps even a majority, have concluded that stoikion refers to spiritual powers of some sort. The Testament of Solomon, which is a Jewish Christian work, testifies to a belief in star spirits called stoikion. Seven bound spirits appear before Solomon and reveal their identity. It says, we are stoikeia, rulers of this world of darkness. Our stars in heaven look small, but we are named like gods. So what is being dissolved here in the elements being dissolved is the old covenant Jewish system and the false gods that oppose Yahweh. And if you trace stoichia through its seven uses, you'll see several times it's used of false gods, heavenly rulers, and several times it's used of the Jewish system as a whole. The stoichia is the system of Judaism. And see what happens at the second coming, that system of Judaism is dissolved. What also happens at the second coming is all these false gods are crushed and they're done. All right? So Peter's talking about this promise of the new heaven and new earth. Well, where do we read about that promise? Peter didn't make that up. He didn't just say, let me come up with this new idea. Where did he get that from? Got it from Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66. Look, 65, 17 says, 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, if you read Isaiah 65 and 66, you'll notice that before God creates the new heaven and new earth, He pours out His wrath on the old heaven and old earth, which is Jerusalem. His rebellious people. Now, when God creates the new heavens and new earth, if you read these two chapters, you'll notice that physical death remains. Isaiah 65.20 and 66.24. So this is in the new heavens and new earth. We still have physical death. Home construction, agriculture continues. Isaiah 65.21-22. We will have descendants. Isaiah 65.23, 66.22. The Lord will hear their prayers, Isaiah 65.24. There will be evangelism, 66.19. So obviously this new heavens and new earth is not the dissolution of the old earth. That's not what he's talking about. The new heavens and new earth are referring to a period of human history. This is the kingdom of God. This is what we live in right now. Now, futurists teach that the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21 and the new Jerusalem of Revelation 22 is the saved of all the ages, the bride of Christ at the end of the millennium when all things have ended and we've embarked into eternity. You know, everything is remade and we're starting all over, basically. But they have entered into eternity. That's what they think. Okay, we're in eternity. Sin, death, Hades, Satan, they've all been cast in the lake of fire. Remember that all the evil has been disposed of. God has healed the church of her sin. Her she's purged out all the wicked. And we just have this wonderful church and we're coming back to the reconstructed earth and just live happily forever after. Well, the futurists, they teach that the earth is going to be a physical paradise at that time. But again, is that what the Scriptures teach? Well, if you look at Revelation 22... It says, then the angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding the fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, you look at that verse and immediately you've got to ask the question, why would the nations need healing in this Utopia stayed here. Well, if you adopt the futurist view, then this verse is kind of hard to explain. But if you adopt the preterist view, then the explanation is because it's talking about our time, the time we're living in now, the gospel's still going out, nations are being healed. Does the new covenant gospel age end? It's no, it's an everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13 20 says. All right, let's go back to 1 John. And now little children abide in Him, so that, now this is a hint on purpose clause here. We've got to get this. This is fundamental here. Why are we to abide? So that, when He appears, we'll have confidence and not shrink from Him at His coming. Now, we have two possibilities here, people, at the return of Christ. Either you're going to be confident Bold at His coming. You know, you're just excited to see the Lord. You're bold to see Him. Or, you're going to shrink back in shame. Two adjectives suggesting opposing positions. One, you're either going to come into God's presence confident, or you're going to come in with shame. 
Now, who's the we here? I think this represents all believers. He's talking to the believers, probably in Asia. That's where this was written. But he says, uh, we will have confidence. It's all believers. Believers would not be ashamed, he's saying, if they abide in Christ. But if they fail to abide, then there's going to be shame at His coming. So if we abide in Him, we'll have confidence at the second coming, but if we don't abide in Him, we're going to have shame at the second coming. When Yeshua appears, those who have been faithful, those who have abided, will approach Him openly and with great confidence. Now the word confidence here is from the Greek word parasia, and the word shrink and shame are from the word aiskunomai. Both of these words are used by Paul in Philippians 1.20. Paul says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Uh, what I want to look at here with this word aiskunomai is that it has more than one meaning. All right? The dictionary defines ashamed as being affected by shame, and shame is defined as a painful emotion excited by a conscience of guilt, disgrace, dishonor. But that's not the only meaning of aiskunomai. The Greek word aiskunomai can also be translated as disappoint. And they're related here, okay? I think there's similarities. For example, um, if you're disappointed in yourself, or in something else, you, there could be shame. Especially if, if you use disappointed in and of yourself. I'm disappointed in myself, so I'm kind of ashamed. You get that connection there? Well, let me give you a, some princi a principle of hermeneutics here. When you look up a word in Strong's or Young's lexicon, they're going to give you what's called the etymology of the word. The etymology is the dictionary definition. All right. Oftentimes, that's not how it's used in the Bible. There's another way to find out what a word means, and that's by usage. In other words, you go through the Scripture, you find out how this is used. In exegesis, which one always takes precedent? Etymology or usage? Usage. Why? Because words change meaning over time. So you have to see how was it used, because just because you know the, the dictionary definition doesn't mean, you know, do you understand? If I gave you a book and said, I want you to scan through this, you might think I want you to put it on a scanner and you know, run it or, or just briefly look through it, right? A hundred years ago, scan would be to read thoroughly, to digest, to dig into it. So that's why we got to understand the usage of words because they change their meaning. So we want to look at that. So, and and it's, it's a cool study and it's a worthwhile study to dig through and find out for yourself how words are used. So you get a concordance out, you look up the words, you trace it through its uses and get an idea. And as you find its uses, you know, you're going to say, oh, I see what that means here. All right, the meaning of disappoint for the Greek word aiskunomai is unmistakable at several places in Scripture. Let me show you one. Romans 5.5. 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Let me ask you something, people. What does hope and shame have to do with each other? Can you see a connection between those two? Well, it might help if you translated it like this. Hope doesn't disappoint. You see that connection between hope and disappointment? Sure, there's a connection there. 
The word disappoint, translated as shamed, in the ESV is kata aiskuno. It's a strengthened form of aiskunomai. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon translates this, does not disappoint. Phillips correctly translates, a steady hope will never disappoint us. Kittle, in his Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words, says, extra-biblical, the word... Extra-biblically, the word shame was often used for disillusionment. Alright? Let's look at Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Uh, we see this also in Romans 10.11. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. The word put to shame in both places is kata aiskuno. The idea is no one who trusts in Christ will ever be disappointed. So that disappointment fits much better in those verses than the idea of shame does. Uh, Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. The word ashamed here is epiaiskunomai, and Paul is saying he has never been disappointed in the gospel. Now, Paul wrote this to the Romans who took pride in the Roman power. The Roman legions had conquered the civilized world. But the gospel, he's saying, possesses a power that doesn't disappoint the Christian. Alright? So, in many places, it's better translated that um, disappoint than ashamed. 1 Peter 4.16 If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Again, I'm having trouble making a connection between being ashamed, and suffering. But I can see a connection between suffering and being disappointed. Okay? The word here, ashamed, is aiskunomai, be better translated as disappoint. The same thing in 2 Timothy 1.12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know who I have believed. And again, I think he's saying here, I am not disappointed. Again, it's epiaiskunomai, should be disappointed. Paul wasn't disappointed because he knew that God was going to deliver him through the suffering. He knew it was part of the Christian life, so he was not disappointed that he had to deal with that suffering. He says, he that is able to guard until that day has been entrusted to me. This is a banking metaphor. And Paul says that he has no disappointments in life because his life is Christ and Christ will never disappoint him. Now, I said all that to show that aiskunomai is broader than just the idea of shame. And maybe here, like I said, maybe both ideas are present here. If you view it as disappointed in yourself, that would kind of be a synonym for shame. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself, I'm disappointed in myself. So, just kind of keep that idea in mind there. He says that we may have confidence this word is from the Greek parasia, and it means courage, confidence, boldness, fearlessness, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. I think God's one of those people of high rank, right? Uh, John's point here is that if believers abide in Christ, and what he means by that, following the teaching they've heard from the beginning, and which the anointing of the Holy Spirit continues to teach them, then when Yeshua appears at the second coming and judges His people, they would be confident and not ashamed or not disappointed. Now, since we believe 
as I believe, that the second coming happened in A.D. 70, how were the believers who were living then, how were the believers that he is writing to confident or disappointed at the coming? Those people. When the Lord came, it was future to them, it was going to happen in their lifetime. Did the living then see Christ at His coming? No. No, they did not see Him. They didn't say, look, on the cloud, you see Him? He's on the cloud right there. I watched a, a two-hour message Friday night, some Baptist preacher preaching on flat earth and trying to prove it from the Bible. And this is he was using this to say, okay, flat earth, every eye would see Him. You can only do that on a flat earth. And I'm like, I don't care how flat it is. You still not. You can only see for so far, you know. But you know, he said on the globe everybody couldn't see him because you got some people underneath and Christ up here. But on a flat earth, everybody'd see him. I'm like, boy, that's not good. I said, Jesus, that's exit Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so no, these people didn't see him, but his presence was made known. Listen, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman army. This happened in A.D. 70. Rome destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That way, in that way, Christ's presence was made known. Now listen, just as Yahweh's presence was made known to the Egyptians by the Assyrian army. In Isaiah 19.1, it says, An oracle concerning Egypt. This is a judgment on Egypt. Now watch what it says. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. He comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So what's happening here? Is Yahweh surfing on a cloud? And the Egyptians look up and say, oh, there comes that Yahweh God flying in on a cloud. No, listen. We know from chapter 20 that God's using the Assyrians as instruments of the wrath on Egypt. Yet it says here, listen, the Lord is riding a swift cloud. Because riding a cloud means coming in judgment. So Yahweh came to Egypt. Did He physically come to Egypt? Did people look up and see Yahweh in a cloud? No. How did He come? He came in judgment. His presence was made known by the Assyrians who were literally present and who were destroying Egypt. So that's the same thing as His Son does. All right, We need to understand this if we're going to understand the second coming of Christ. Christ's coming was not physical. It was not, look up in the sky and there He is. His coming was the same as His Father's. He came in judgment. The nature of the second coming was not physical, not bodily as a man. Christ came in judgment against Old Covenant Israel when He destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 using the Roman army. Now, I think that's clear from the Scripture, but so many people just can't seem to put that together, alright? He comes, He comes in judgment. It's not look up, you know, we can see Him riding on this puffy cloud up there, and He's just, you know, coming down to us. That's not the idea there at all, alright? So He says, we'll have confidence and not shame at His coming. So if Christ was not visible, 
at the second coming, how were believers living at that time bold or disappointed in themselves at His coming? How were, you know, they're living on earth, they're going through their lives, all of a sudden Jerusalem is destroyed, that's the coming of Christ. How were they bold or, if they didn't see Christ, how does this work out? Alright, here's how I see it. Okay? I see the boldness or the disappointment as something that takes place after the second coming, after physical death, at the Bema Seat Judgment. Even though eternal salvation is an entirely free gift, which we can never lose, the New Testament makes it plain that believers are going to give an account of their life before God. I don't know that we understand that today. But this is, a, this is the whole motive here for John. He says, listen, abide in Christ. So when He comes, and He's talking about at their death, because they're not going to be judged until they go before the Lord after their death. But Christians are going to give account of their life in the presence of Christ. Look at Romans 14, 10-12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Boy, that's a good question, isn't it? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Now watch what he says. We will all stand before the judgment seat. The word judgment seat there is the Greek word bima. We're going to stand before the bima of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's saying, don't worry about judging your brother because... God's going to judge your brother, and He's going to judge you. You just worry about you, okay? Because you have to stand before them. So Paul here is speaking to the Roman Christians. When are they going to give an account to God? Well, they're going to give it after the Lord returns, but at their physical death. They're going to face the Lord. He has a similar message to the believers in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all, all Christians, appear before the judgment seat. Again, judgment seat there is in Greek, Bema, of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So you're going to receive something from the Lord at this judgment based on what you've done in the body. This is why you're alive. Now in the context here, it's clear that both incidents, Paul is addressing Christians, not unbelievers. Unlike the great white throne judgment, that's a judgment of unbelievers, the Bema seat is not for the purpose of condemnation. Christ has already bore our condemnation. This is not a judgment to say, oh, you messed up, you're not going to make it into heaven. No, that's not it. If you're at the Bema, you're good already, okay? But it's a judgment of what you've done. Look at Romans 8.1. Hope you know this scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Yeshua. Alright? No condemnation. Reading this in the original text, the emphasis rests upon the word no. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. That's emphatic in the Greek text. No condemnation. The Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. Katakrama is the normal word for condemnation. It's only used three times in Scripture, all of them by Paul. He used it here and twice in Romans 5. See, here he's telling you you don't have condemnation. 
In Romans 5, he tells us what the condemnation is. So let's jump back to Romans 5, 16. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, that's Adam's sin, one trespass, brought condemnation. Now, we see here that Adam's sin resulted in judgment. The word judgment here is the Greek word krima. It means a sentence. A sentence passed by the judge. The judge says, this is going to happen to you, that's the sentence, that's krima. Katakrima here is condemnation. Now, katakrima is defined by Souter in his lexicon as the punishment following the sentence. It's a passive formation in the Greek and not likely to refer to the sentence as the edict from the judge, rather to the punishment. So Adam's sin is imputed to all. This is condemnation, which is spiritual death. Alright? That's what he's talking about here. Following the one trespass brought spiritual death. That's the condemnation. We see that also in 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation... For all men. So the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Again, in this verse we see Adam's sin, his transgression resulted in katakrema, or spiritual death. For all men. When Adam sinned, he sinned as the federal head, a representative of the human race. When he sinned, we sinned in him. Because he represented us. Now if you don't like that, you better understand that Christ also represented us. And so, you know, that's, that's the good side of the thing. All right, When you trust Christ, He becomes your representative. Because every human being since Adam has been born spiritually dead. Because of Adam, separated from God. His act was a representative act, and you and I, being represented by our federal head, participated in Adam's sin. We were born spiritually dead. But He said... But now there's no condemnation for those in Christ Yeshua. The spiritual death. Again, condemnation. There is no spiritual death. Never can be, never will be spiritual death for those who have trusted Christ. But he says here, for those who are in Christ. There's some people in Christ, there's some people not in Christ. You're in Christ by faith. For those people not in Christ, they're under condemnation. See, Paul's not a universalist. He knows some people are in Christ, some people are not in Christ. So the Bema is not a judgment of condemnation. That's been settled by Christ. It's not a determiner of salvation. There are two purposes for the Bema seat. First one, according to Romans 10, 10-14, believers are to, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You aware of that? Does that factor into your life and conduct conversation at all? You're going to give an account. This is an expression often used for keeping financial records. It is to Yahweh that we're going to have to answer. So what kind of an account are we going to give? What are we going to give an account for? Well, in, in the context of this text here, we're going to give an account for abiding in Christ. In other words, are we living like we're supposed to live? Are we abiding in Him? We're going to give an account. Now, do you see how some people are going to be disappointed or ashamed? And some people are going to be bold? A second function of the Bema Seat of Christ is that of God rewarding us 
for our service and good deeds. Again, back to 2 Corinthians 5.10. So that each of us may receive what is due. This is not grace. Okay, This is you're getting what is owed you for what you've done in the body while you're alive, whether good or evil. See, we're going to receive rewards based on how we've lived. And this is not an isolated teaching in the New Testament. If we go to Matthew 16.27, Yeshua's talking here. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. So how have they lived? Have they abided in Me? Are they living a holy, righteous life before Me? He also says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon. This is written in the first century. Soon ended then. It's not still soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. In other words, people, listen. How we live is important. Yes, if you've trusted Christ, you're going to heaven and nothing's going to change that. But how you live is important because one day we're all going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for what we have done. We're stewards. Notice what Paul said to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So he said, you're gonna, he's charging them in the presence of Christ, who is, and this is mellow here, which means about to. In the first century, he's about to judge the living and the dead. The judgment was near. And Paul says, I'm telling you, Timothy, preach the word. Be faithful because the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. We're all going to stand before the Lord. We're going to be there at the beam of seat of Christ. And our lives are going to be evaluated. Believers living in light of eternity is a motive for abiding in Christ. I think our greatest motive should be gratitude. And I think as you grow in your Christian life, you realize that this is, you know, I realize all the Lord's done for me. There's just this gratitude that you want to honor the Lord, you want to live for the Lord. But this also should play in your thinking that someday you're going to stand before the Lord. And living with the realization that you're going to face the Lord one day and you're going to give an account for your life. You're going, to, you're going to answer. Okay? Now the believers who were living at the second coming had to give an account to the Lord at their death. They didn't give an account until they died. And so will we. And I think this accounting goes on. And I don't, think the beam, I don't see the beam of seat as a one-time event, boom, and we missed it, so we're good. We don't have to deal with it, all right? They, it was for them, and we're good to go. No. At your death, the Lord will, you will stand on the Bema platform and answer for you, not for anybody else. There's not going to be a whole group, well, let's do a group judgment all at one time. Everybody come in. No. Individually, listen, God can do that, okay? And you're going to give account to the Lord after your death. Some of us will be bold. Some of us will be disappointed and ashamed. But how you live now 
is going to matter for eternity. And I want you to just put that in your heads, believer. Eternity is a long time. Okay? When we've been there 10,000 years, the song goes, bright shining as the sun, we've only then begun to sing His praise. 10,000 years. 10 million years. 10 trillion years. Long time compared to now. So how you live now will matter. As far as... See, I just don't think we're just going to get there and, okay, God says, here's your cloud, here's your harp, go just pluck away you know, on a harp somewhere. No! That's not what heaven's going to be like. I really think the heavenly realm is patterned, or the earthly realm is patterned after the heavenly realm. When we get there, there'll be people ruling, there'll be jobs being done, there'll be things going on in a spiritual dimension. And so depending on how you've lived here will matter what you do there. Your reward will matter. Your function will matter. So just keep that in mind because this is a pretty short time we're here. All right? All right. <clears throat> one more verse and we're done. This will be a short one. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right. He says, this is a third class conditional sentence. That means potential action. And the phrase is not whether, you know, we... is. Yeshua is righteous or not, but whether the readers realize that He's righteous. If you know that, maybe you know it, maybe you don't know it. But if you know that He's righteous, then you know that everyone who does righteousness is born of Him. You know here is either a present active indicative, which states an ongoing knowledge, or it's a present active imperative, which speaks of a believer's necessary knowledge. And I think John uses know here as the possession of all who have the Spirit. And so this is an indicative here. It states the knowledge. You know this, alright? The righteousness of God is spoken throughout Scripture and believers know that. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Psalm 119, 137 Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and, the right, and right are your rules. When used of God, the concept of righteousness involves the opposition of sin. You know, God instructs Moses to write a song that would be taught to the whole nation and passed down to generations. That's how they did things. You know, and songs help you memorize things. You know, Zoe for school is working on the periodic table, and we found a song on YouTube. They sing it, and man, she's got the whole thing down quickly. You know, because it's put to music. And God knows that. So God says, here's this. Deuteronomy 32 is a song. The song of Moses. And the nation of Israel is going to sing this at the ceremony renewing their covenant with God. And one of the things he stresses in this is the righteousness of God. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 says, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Now what's he mean? I'm going to just go out and yell, Yahweh! The name here in Hebrew is Hashem. And Hashem is your character. Your name. You know, you, we, we use it that way, right? He's got a good name. We don't mean, oh, that's a one. We like the name. No, it means his character. He's got character behind him. When you think of that person, you think of character. So I'll proclaim the character of Yahweh. He says, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright. The translation here is righteous. God is righteous. And Moses had them sing this song to declare, to reveal the righteousness of God. God is a righteous God. So he says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. 
this is kind of the idea here. When, when someone is born to someone else, there's almost always a family resemblance. Right? We hear that all the time. Oh, you got your mother's eyes. Oh, you got your father's nose. Or you got, you know, something. You, you see the similarity there. Okay? I was just telling Cassidy that today. I said, I took a picture of her and I looked at the picture. I said, you look just like your mother in that picture. She does. She looks just like her mother. Well, children have a resemblance. And listen, children of God are going to have a resemblance to their father. He's righteous and he reproduces righteousness in every abiding child of his. God is righteous. Therefore, the source of all righteousness. So when a man is righteous, we know that he got that righteousness from God. That he acquired it through the new birth. That that righteousness wasn't something he normally had. Yeshua taught the Jews this in the fourth gospel. In John 8, 39, he says, "They, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Yeshua said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. You'd look like Abraham if you were his children. You'd bear a resemblance. But they didn't bear a resemblance. Children resemble the father, he's saying. And then he says, has been born of his. This is a perfect passive indicative, which means a settled condition brought about by an outside agent. And that agent is God the Father. In other words, if you've been born of him, it's God's work. God does that. Now, Commenting on this verse, Zane Hodges writes this in his commentary, and I think this is really important for us to understand because I think it gets confused. He says, we must not make this verse say more than it does. John certainly does not say, whoever does not do righteousness is not born of him. Okay, he's not, John is not saying that. Because he said, that would be an inference in no way justified by John's statement. He is not talking here about how we can decide if a person is saved. If we know that that person believes, we can know he's saved. But here John is clearly concerned with the deduction which we can make if we know that God is righteous. If that is known, it follows that one who to any extent reproduces his righteous nature is actually manifesting that nature and can rightly be perceived as born of him. In other words, when you see someone who's righteous, you say, they get that from God. If you see someone who's not living righteousness, you can't say they don't belong to God. Because you know what? Sometimes God's children don't look like their father at all. All Alright? This verse does not say that everyone who's born of God practices righteousness. Because they don't. Believers walk in darkness. We saw that 1 John 1.6, 1 John 1.8, 1 John 2.1. The point here is that when a child exhibits the nature of his or her father, he or she is perceived as the child of that father. In other words, when you're demonstrating a righteous life, that's got to come from God because it doesn't come from us. Practicing righteousness is normal, but not inevitable. You got bad teaching, you got bad circumstances, whatever. A lot of Christians don't abide as they should. All right? They just don't do it. Alright, let me sum this up here. What I see John telling us. He is telling believers, that's the little children, technia, to abide in Him. Why? Because one day, we're going to stand before the Lord and you're either going to face Him with confidence or shame. But everybody's going to stand before Him. You're going to give an account for your life. So will you be confident? Will you walk up boldly, excited to see the Lord? Or will you be disappointed in yourself and therefore suffering shame? 
Only you can answer that, I guess. And maybe, hopefully, you're honest with yourself because we're good at lying to ourselves and thinking, I got this all worked out. It'll be okay. Well, we're going to stand before Him, the God of glory. We're going to face Him and give an account for how we live. We got He's given us everything, Peter said, that pertains to life and godliness. Okay? It's our responsibility, though, to live a righteous, holy life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, for the reminder that someday we will stand before You. We will give an account for how we've lived. Lord, I pray this would be a motivating factor in our lives, Lord, that we desire to honor You through our speech, through our conduct, that our lives would reflect our Father, that we'd be image bearers, Lord, that would bear You to the world around us. Thank You for Your patience with us, Lord. Thank You for Your grace. I thank You that there is now no condemnation. We will never be lost. We will never be kicked out of Your family. But we will answer for how we live. Thank You for Your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Anthony. So, what do you think about this? Um, the rewards and stuff, right? Confidence and shame. Um, so, is it, is it primary? Is it something like, okay, if you, if you abide in him and do everything, and, you know, multiple things, okay, so you think is he looking at you? Okay, you can be there in heaven, you can be put in this little room, like the size of this, for, for your reward, or are you going to, he can use you in multiple areas just. The heavens is so widely. Well, you know, <laughs> you're asking questions that I certainly can't answer. Okay, you know, I don't know what you're going to get. You know, um, I know. You know, the Bible talks about you've been faithful. You know, rule over ten cities. Yeah. You so, know, yeah. Um, you know, I. We've talked about this before. There's so little in the scriptures about the eternal realm. I don't know that our we can wrap our head around it, okay? But I know the Bible talks about rewards. It talks about receiving what you've done. It talks about, you know, some people ruling over three cities, some people ruling over ten. You know, there's different levels, and that's, you know, it's above my pay grade, yeah, but... You know, when you get to heaven, you have this little space here, or, you know, that's why I brought it up like that. You know, well, you know, again, or, or you gonna be, you know, I don't know. You know, he says you're going to receive what is due you for what you've done. So maybe you get a shoebox to live in. <laughs> you're going to be in heaven, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. I really don't. I wish I could tell you more. Um, Anybody else? Stan? Um, back in my Air Force days, and I'm not sure if this is what he was relating to, and I'm, you know, he was uh, the, uh, what was he, the Air Force chaplain. We had a Bible study at his place way back in the 90s. And he was saying, you know, that basically that there will be tears in heaven because it says God will wipe away all tears. You think that was referring to the, the judgment seat? No, I, I don't think this is, you know, the tears are wiped away because the condemnation is gone, okay? There's no condemnation now, so there's no crying. I, I, I think, you know, that's, 
people take it further than you know than the scriptures do when you're you're going to be suffering you're going to be no that's you're going to be in heaven okay but you're going to be rewarded for what you've done you know you get up the bema platform was a raised platform that you stood up and you received your reward okay you came in third place here's your third place reward or here's your first place reward you know it's a reward platform all right it's not not about punishment okay but you're going to get what was due bothers me. <laughs> I don't want what's due. I want grace. <laughs> Gary? <laughs> this is, this is, listen, it's talking about your Christian life, okay? You know, yeah, I think we all screw up here and there, you know, what is the consistent theme of your life you know is it righteous are you moving in the right direction you know i don't you know like i said christ paid our sin debt thank the lord the sins are paid for this is not about sin this is about that's a sin he died for sin complaining is a sin and he died for that so that's the Cheryl? Remember when they got all got paid the same at the end of the day? Right, yeah. It doesn't matter when you come. It's just right. exactly referring to right. that or you're talking about something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that could, you know, I guess you could use that idea of salvation. You know, well, I, I've been here, I've borne the work of the, you know, the whole day, and I get the same pay he got. You know, that's, that is heaven, okay? I mean, that's, some people, you know, they get saved at the end of their life, and, well, I, you get come to the same heaven I do? You know, I got saved as a little child, and I served them all. That's not about that. See, that that is grace. That and that picture, that whole parable is a picture of grace. You know, you're getting this guy only worked two hours. He gets what? See, he told the guy who worked all day, "Here's what you'll get," and he he was fair. He got what he promised, but he didn't think it was fair because that guy didn't work as much as him. All right. So yeah, I think you know, heaven is about grace, and then our status there. I don't know. It's it's like I said, it's hard to. Put in words, but I really think the heavenly realm, this realm is patterned after that. Okay? <laughs> it's a different realm, okay? When you get into that realm, it's, you know, like I said, there's, there's so limited the information God gives us. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's beyond our comprehension, you know? You're going to like it there, okay? I'll tell you that. Anybody else? We done? Kath? All right, let's let's close with a song. Uh, I thought I picked out this song because I think um, kind of applicable for what we're talking about. Make me a servant. You know, if we're a servant and we're serving the Lord and serving other people, if we're humble, if we're meek, God resists the proud. The Bible says, and you know that's a really strong term. It's God puts on his warrior outfit against the proud. In other words, I'm going to do battle with the proud. That's what God says. But he gives grace to the humble. I'm like, hmm, cool. I want some grace, okay? So we got to be humble. 